Open your Bibles to Philippians 1. We're going to be starting in verse 18 and going to verse 26. Philippians 1, 18 to 26 is where we'll be this morning. Have you ever walked through a cemetery and read the words inscribed on the tombstones of the people that you come across? There are some you see that are really pretty generic or fairly common. Here lies so-and-so. Husband, father, son, friend. Sometimes you see a little scripture verse inscribed underneath, maybe just the address of that scripture. You kind of think maybe that scripture was a favorite of theirs, or maybe it epitomized their life, so the people that buried them thought. Sometimes it's something humorous, like the comedian Spike Milligan, I told you I was sick. Sometimes it's quotes that typified their life, or that made you think something profound, or remember them and their significance in some way. Mel Blanc, you remember him? Voiceover actor of Porky Pig, Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck. His tombstone reads, that's all, folks. Merv Griffin, the TV mogul, producer of a lot of TV shows. His says, I will not be right back after this message. Benjamin Franklin, the body of B. Franklin, printer. Like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding, lies here food for worms. But the work shall not be wholly lost, for it will, as he believed, appear once more in a new and more perfect edition, corrected and amended by the author. Wordy, but it's, it's good, you got to admit. Robert Clay Allison was a gunslinger in the Wild West. He said... He never killed a man that did not need killing. Well, there you go. Jesse James, notorious Jesse James. His says, murdered April 3rd, 1882 by a traitor and coward whose name is not worthy to appear here. And apparently that was written by Jesse James's mama, which makes it even funnier. The epitaph on a tombstone is a synopsis of the identity of the deceased. Who were they? Who was he? What was important to him? What was important to her? What was she like? But if you were to sit down right now and write your own epitaph in your bulletin at this very moment, what would your epitaph say? If you were to then take it and show it to the person sitting next to you, would they agree with you? Or is it only in your own mind? In other words, how would you define yourself? What would you say? What phrase captures the essence of your life? Perhaps what would others say about your identity? This morning, Paul is going to set before the church at Philippi a paragraph that has come to be one of the most iconic passages 
in all of Scripture, mainly for a central phrase that occurs right in the middle of it, where Paul says, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But what exactly does he mean when he says that? To me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. What is he putting before the Philippians? What's he putting before us? How should we respond to what he says here? That's our task this morning as we read from the second half of verse 18 all the way through 26. Let's read. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've read your word. We've prayed it. We've sung it. We pray now that your word would have effect. Preach in place of me to all of us. Open our hearts that we might be able to understand and perceive your word and apply it to our lives. Open our ears and our eyes that we may see and hear what you are saying to each and every single one of us. Would you apply your word to us, that we may be different having encountered you through your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We've seen over the past few weeks the desire that Paul has for the Philippian church to live lives that are Christ-centered. Remember the first week that we were in Philippians, he said that centering their lives on Christ is a work that God begins in them and God will see through to the end. He brings about faith in His people and He sees it through to completion in the day of Christ. In other words, it is a long, slow process centering your life on Christ. It's a long, slow road that will meet its fulfillment when Christ returns. And God is the one working to bring it about. Then we saw the following week that his prayer for the church at Philippi is that they would be filled with the kind of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And it's a fruit that he wants to see produced through three things. Knowledge of God, through discernment, and they're abounding in love for one another. And as these three things grow, their love for one another, their knowledge of God, their discernment, meaning their application, as these three things grow together, they produce the fruit of righteousness in the life of the Philippians. Last week, Paul told the Philippians that his imprisonment has really served to advance the gospel. On a couple of fronts. One, because there's a pagan imperial guard that is around him every day. 
And because he is there on behalf of the gospel, imprisoned, the pagan guard has come to understand why he's in prison. They've come to hear the gospel of sorts. So he's giving thanks because the gospel's advancing amongst the imperial guard. But then in other cases, the gospel is growing in boldness by preachers who, because of his imprisonment, have grown bolder in their preaching. They've seen Paul imprisoned on behalf of Christ, and it has given them an earnest desire to proclaim Christ all the more. But then there's another group in that who have, yes, begun to proclaim Christ all the more, but it's been at Paul's expense. So what does that look like? I'm not exactly sure. Maybe they're proclaiming the gospel and they don't really like Paul. And so they're explaining to others, Paul got what was coming to him. And he didn't do what was right. He's obviously not living what he preaches. Maybe, in some cases, it was the praetorium, the Roman guard who was hearing why Paul was imprisoned and were telling other Roman soldiers why this man is imprisoned. Needless to say, in every way, Paul is commending to the Philippians what a Christ-centered life actually looks like, and as he puts it into practice, by rejoicing in the fact that he's in prison and that the gospel is being proclaimed even if it comes at his own expense. I think it's probably true of all of us that follow Christ, that we would like to consider our lives as being Christ-centered. But how do you really know your life is Christ-centered? What does it even mean for your life to be Christ-centered? It's like those sermons or perhaps Sunday school lessons that would end with the command, put God first. And everybody would leave those sermons or those Sunday school lessons thinking that that sermon or that Sunday school lesson was for the person sitting next to him because I am putting God first. That had to be for him because I don't think he is. How do we know if we're putting God first? The same question applies here. How do we even know if our life is Christ-centered? Well, Paul is going to give us the answer here. Christ-centeredness is radical self-denial for the glory of Christ. To put a fine point on what a Christ-centered life actually looks like, Christ-centeredness is radical self-denial for the glory of Christ. So here is Paul in prison, and he's rejoicing mainly for two reasons. The first we saw last week, he's rejoicing because Christ is being proclaimed. His imprisonment has increased the sense of boldness amongst preachers. They've evangelized with more zeal. They're preaching with more courage than ever. Perhaps, as we said, there's some that just don't like Paul or are criticizing him in some way, but their gospel is also being proclaimed. And so, for that reason, Paul rejoices. But then we get to the second reason in today's passage, the reason that he is rejoicing Uh, in this passage because he's convinced that he's going to be delivered. He says in verse 19, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus, uh, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now there's some debate over what kind of deliverance Paul is talking about here. What does he mean when he says, this will turn out for my deliverance? Is he saying 
that he knows that all that in with his imprisonment and, and all the people that want to afflict him and want to condemn him as they preach the gospel, that, that they will be proven wrong in the courtroom of God, that he might die. And, and he's, but he's going to stand before God on Judgment Day, and God is there going to vindicate him in the presence of all that would be watching? Is he saying that he's going to be delivered eternally? Is that what he's convinced about? He could be. But I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think he's talking about being released from prison, and the reason that I think that is because the end of the passage, he says there in verse 24... To remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. It seems as though in this passage Paul is really convinced that he's going to be released from prison, and not only that, but that he's going to join the church at Philippi again and that's going to be for their benefit. They're going to rejoice having seen him released from prison. But it's important to remember that Paul is convinced that he's going to be released and that he's going to see the church at Philippi again. And he knows that it's better for the Philippians so that he says, in, the, in him they have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of his plan to visit them again. This is actually really important how we understand the impact of what Paul is saying in this passage. So Paul is rejoicing. Remember that. Paul is rejoicing over the fact that he's going to return to see the church at Philippi again. Now, Ultimately, he says, just following that, that he, is, he has a confident hope that he will in no way be ashamed, but that with complete boldness, Christ will be exalted whether he lives or dies. That his life is of really no consequence in the grand scheme of things. Christ will be exalted in his body whether he lives or dies. So while he is confident that he's ultimately going to be delivered from prison, he's confident that no matter how he personally fares, Christ is going to be glorified in his body. If his body falls lifeless to the earth, Christ is glorified that he has faithfully persevered to the end. If he's released from prison, Christ is glorified in his continuing work. Even in his release, do you notice what his goal is and is not? Notice that his goal is not his personal freedom. That might be my goal. That might be your goal. If we ever found ourselves in chains, I just want to get out. Life is on the outside. But it's not as though Paul is sitting in prison, in chains, wanting to be released so that he might not feel the shackles against his skin anymore. Or that he might gain some sense of freedom. If only I could have one more Chick-fil-A sandwich. That's not Paul's hope. He wants to be released from prison so that the Philippians will glory in Christ Jesus. Do you notice that he says that? That's the reason he wants to be released. So that the Philippians will glory in Christ Jesus. So that they will progress in faith. Now, just earlier, he has rejoiced at being in prison because the gospel has advanced amongst the praetorium. So in prison, he's rejoicing because the gospel is advancing. In his release, he rejoices because the gospel is advancing. So Paul sees his life 
solely for the purpose of the glory of Christ. You see that? And by that, what he means is, I think, the increase of the joy of the worship of Jesus. That's what he wants. His life is to be lived solely for the glory of Christ. But this is Paul's charge to all of us. This is not just the charge that he's taken on himself. This is his charge to all of us. Listen to 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Romans 15.7 Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Why? For the glory of God. Romans 5.2 Through Him... We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, the reason you and I were redeemed by Christ is so that we might glorify, worship, and proclaim the majesty and grace of God. That is the reason you exist. To worship and glorify and magnify and proclaim the majesty and grace of God. That is the reason our church exists. To proclaim and glorify and worship the majesty and the grace of God. That is the reason we exist and we're redeemed. Believe it or not, the primary reason... You come to church on Sunday is not to learn something. I didn't say you won't learn something. I hope you do. It is a secondary or tertiary reason why you come to church. It is, however, not the primary reason that you come to church. The primary reason is not to get. The primary reason is to give. Primarily to give worship and praise and adoration to the only one who deserves it. As Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's the very reason that you and I exist as people redeemed to God to proclaim His excellencies to each other and to the world around us. Friends, when you realize that, it will change your relationship to the world. It will change your relationship to the church around you. It will change your relationship to everything you know and love when you realize that the reason you exist is to proclaim the glory and majesty of God. For Paul, what he says it means is that he will go wherever and do whatever the Lord wants him to do with little to no regard for his own preferences. In fact, as we'll see in a moment, and you can even see this in verse 23, he actually tells you what his desire is. What does he say his desire is? My desire is to depart, meaning to die and be with Christ. And he says that's far better. No disagreement here. But look at verse 24. 
To remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain. Now look back up at the very beginning of this passage where it all started in, eight, in the second half of verse 18. Look at what he says. Yes, and I will rejoice. Paul is rejoicing over getting what he doesn't desire. Do you see that? Paul is rejoicing over getting not what he desires. So hopefully you see the situation that he set up for the Philippians. He's relishing that whether he lives or whether he dies, his life or death is lived for the glory of Christ. Even in the event that that means his personal desire to die and be with Christ is something that he has to wait for, that right now is a no. But don't we have to ask, how? How can Paul say that? How can he sit there and say, I don't get my preferences met in this particular case, but yet I rejoice. How is it that Paul is able to rejoice under these circumstances in prison, rejoicing that the gospel spreads amongst the praetorium, or out of prison that the gospel spreads to the church at Philippi? How is it that Paul is able to rejoice under whatever circumstance he has, even if that would mean that his particular desire isn't met for the time being? How is that possible? I think the answer is in verse 21. I think that's the reason verse 21 is written is an answer to that question. How is that possible? Where he says this, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. We sense how weird that phrase is, don't we? For me, for to me to live is Christ. It feels like it's missing something. That's not, that's a weird statement in English. For me to live is Christ. It feels like it should have something in the middle. of To live is for the glory of Christ. To live is to be like Christ. Or something that needs to be put in there in the middle. But he doesn't say any of that. He just explains why Christ will be honored in his body by his life by saying, because to me, to live is Christ. It's a value statement. What Paul is saying is that his life equals Christ's life. It's an identity statement. Paul's identity is Christ. It's a purpose statement. Paul's purpose is Christ's purpose. They're synonymous. My life is Christ's. How is, that, how is it that his preferences have taken a back seat so that the Philippians might be benefited? How is it that Paul's preferences have taken a back seat? Well, Paul is telling you here, he's saying that his very identity has been subsumed in Christ's identity. My life is Christ. I'm not Paul anymore. 
My life is now Jesus Christ. The things that I do now are the things that He wants to do through me. He is living out His desires in me, His servant. Paul's making a statement about his identity. Paul is one of the members of Christ's body. Christ is the head. Paul is a member of his body. Let's say a hand. And wherever the head wants the hand to go, Paul is going there. Because my life is Christ. The old Paul is dead. I'm now in complete and total direction of the Lord. I'm used at his discretion. That is radical self-denial. He's foregone his own identity. For me, to live is Christ. But I want you to listen to other things that Paul has said in other books through that lens. To live is Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Colossians 3, 3 For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Galatians 2, 20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Romans 14, 8-9 For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that He might be, both Lord, might be Lord both of the dead and of the the living. Sounds a lot like for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He then says in verse 22, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Why is it fruitful labor for him? Because if his life is a continuation of Christ's earthly ministry, then what is fruitful labor? Then that Christ is actually working through him and producing fruit in and through him in the world around him. Notice again that he expresses his desire if forced to choose, which he admits is a close call. But ultimately, his desire is to depart. A desire that he knows at this time will not now be realized. But he rejoices with his desire because his desire is of little consequence. It doesn't really matter. Christ is going to work through me. Christ is working through me and I would have it no other way. I want you to listen to how this passage flows. With the help of the Spirit of Christ, my life will bring about honor to Christ. My life is Christ. Therefore, fruitful labor for Christ. My death is presence with Christ, which is also my gain. My going, my ongoing ministry with you will cause you to glory in Christ. That's Christ-centered living. Just read through Paul's thoughts here. 
If you just strip away everything else, all the conjunctions and all that kind of stuff, the, the flow of thought here, with the help of the Spirit of Christ, my life or death will bring about honor to Christ. My life is Christ. And therefore, fruitful labor for Christ. My death is presence with Christ, which is gain. My ongoing ministry with you will cause you to glory in Christ. What's Paul's concern? The glory of Christ. That's it. His own preferences, his own expectations, his own hopes are of little consequence to him. What matters most to him is that Christ be exalted in his life or in his death. But brothers and sisters, this is what we've been called to. Remember, the call to be a disciple of Jesus is not a call to make Jesus your homeboy. It's not a call to be cool with Jesus. It's not a call to invite Him anywhere. It's His invitation to you to deny yourself. That's what He says in Matthew 16, 24-25. If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for My sake will find it. The call that Jesus has placed on disciples is radical self-denial. That's what it means to actually be a believer in Jesus. As we've said a number of times, Paul is not setting before you professional Christianity and saying this is what Christianity looks like in the big leagues. Paul is setting before you regular, everyday, normal, ordinary Christianity. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It's one of radical self-denial. It's not your invitation to Him. It's His invitation to you to come and die to self. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to, to deny myself? Literally, to kill your own preferences. To kill all the expectations that you have for the person sitting next to you or around you. If you follow through the track of the, the book of Romans, the epistle of Romans that Paul writes, big complicated text of Scripture, very difficult sometimes to understand. People have debated about certain aspects of it for years. You get down into chapter 15, and Paul summarizes the whole thing, saying, Therefore, accept one another. The point of the whole book boils down to accept one another. Because you have been given grace, because you have been brought back from the dead, because you have been redeemed, Accept one another. But do you know how intolerable the person sitting next to you really is? 
You know how frustrating they can be sometimes? Pig-headed, stubborn, bull-headed. What does it mean to die to self? It means to get over it. Move past it. To instead choose to love one another. Why? Because you are a dirty, wretched sinner and God saved you. That's why. It's built on the foundation of God's love for us through Christ. And it's for that reason that Paul says, my own preferences don't matter. My life is Christ's. He can do with me whatever he wills, because without him I was a dead man anyway. And with him I have eternal life. So what do I care? He can use me however he sees fit. Because for me to die is gain. So there's nothing that can be taken away from me. When Jesus went to the cross, God didn't just punish Jesus. He did punish Jesus. I don't mean to say he didn't. I mean, he didn't just punish Jesus. He saw Jesus as you. That's what's happening on the cross. He sees Jesus as you. Your sins became his sins. God tied you to Jesus. So you're inextricably linked. You can't pry the two apart. He saw Jesus as you. We hear in the gospel or the Bible time and time again. He made him who knew no sin to be sin. We see that in many different facets repeated several times. So for those who trust in Christ, what happened there on the cross is that your identity became inextricably tied to Jesus' identity. So then what happens? Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, Paul tells us in the middle of Romans. Because on the cross, he saw Jesus as you. But then, by Christ dying on your behalf and suffering the full force of God's wrath on your behalf, Because Christ has purchased you back from the dead, redeemed you, given you life, God now sees you as Jesus. Your life is Jesus. Where you go, Christ goes with you. Whatever you do in word or deed, you represent Christ. This is the reason God reminds us time and again, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, be holy for I am holy. You are called by my name. Wherever you go, you associate my name with what you say and do there. You as a church body are members of His body. That's why we are called the body of Christ. You individually are a member of his body, a finger, a toenail, an elbow, an arm, a foot, whatever. When you become a member of the body of Christ, you forfeit any perceived right to personal autonomy. And instead, you now move at his discretion. 
wherever He directs you. You do what He did. You love as He loved. That's why He reminds us time and again, they will know you are my disciples by the love you have for one another. You move at His discretion. You do what He did. You forgive as He forgave. You give as He gave. But the great news is that all along He is empowering the effort. He who began a good work in you is going to bring it to completion in the day of Christ. This is why our work as a church is to proclaim His excellencies to the world around us. Because we're His ambassadors. We have been made that by our association with Christ. Christ is the main ambassador. We follow after Him. But it's also why we are to love one another. Because everywhere we go, everything we do, and everything we say, we associate, whether we like it or not, Christ's name with that thing. What place then in the body of Christ is there for gossip, for slander, for tearing down, for hatred of one another? What place is there in the body of Christ for that? All you end up doing as a church body is associating Christ's name with that thing. When there's tension in a church, what place is there for that? It has to be resolved. Why? Because Christ's name is at stake. Because don't forget, our number one goal is to proclaim the glory of God to the world around us. In Arlington, Virginia just across from the Potomac River in Washington, from Washington, D.C., is Arlington National Cemetery. 639 acres. Much of it is filled with the deceased men and women who have served in our armed forces, particular areas of government going back all the way to the Civil War. Some have been reinterned there that go date before that. There are notable people in that cemetery. People like General George Patton, John and Robert Kennedy, Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, Thurgood Marshall, William Howard Taft. There are other Supreme Court justices, presidents, senators, and representatives. There's generals in there, recipients of the Medal of Honor, Distinguished Service Cross, Navy Cross, Air Force Cross, Silver Star, Purple Heart recipients. There are many people of notoriety. But among the tombs of the highly decorated and distinguished is one that no one knows. The Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Now, to be sure... The sarcophagus of the unknown soldier is one of the more impressive sarcophaguses you will ever see in your life. It's guarded 24-7, and it has been guarded 24-7 since 1937. But inside the original sarcophagus of the unknown soldier lies the body of one who died in World War I. And he stands for many like him who die without Notoriety, without pomp, without circumstance, with no one to identify the remains of the one lying inside. On the tomb of the soldier, 
there is inscribed these words. Here rests in honored glory an American soldier known but to God. I wonder how willing we are to lose our very identity in service to Christ. How satisfied are we to know and to be known only to God? How satisfied are we, how content are we, to live our lives without notoriety, without pomp, without circumstance, perhaps without anybody to identify us as anything other than a soldier of Christ known only to God. You could come up with something clever as an epitaph for your headstone. Perhaps you could come up with a memorable quote, something that would really impact people as they're walking by reading your headstone in the graveyard, something that would cause them to think, perhaps a favorite Bible verse that they might have to look up on their phone real quick, something that leaves people astounded when they read it. But what if the headstone was just a cross, no name, no birth date, no death date? Would you be content to not be mourned or celebrated, to not be honored or remembered? Would you be content to be known only by God? For Christ to be honored exclusively through your life and death? Would you be content to say with Paul, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain? My own preferences they're of no consequence here. They don't matter. I am content to serve in relative anonymity at the behest of Christ, marching where He commands, doing what He does, even if I never receive one amount of accolade for it. The beauty of being in a church body is you have lots of opportunities to serve in anonymous ways. The challenge for us as church members is to look around us at the body around us and see what needs to be done and do it. Not ask for accolades, not wait for glory or commendation, but simply to do what needs to be done to serve others, whether you ever get thanked for it or not. I'm reminded of so many in the children's ministry who do serve on a Sunday-by-Sunday Sunday basis because you are virtually never thanked. That is, until the person is like 35 and they're sitting in my office and they don't call you and thank you. But when the pastor asks them why they're joining the church and how they came to know Christ, they say, well, I had this Sunday school teacher who used to teach me the gospel faithfully week in and week out. Or they say, you know, I was in vacation Bible school that one week, and I just remember those teachers, what they said about Jesus, and it left an impact on my life. The kind of anonymity that that is, is not one where they're going to call you and say, Miss Lynn, thank you for teaching us and for serving us. You're going to hear, well done, 
good and faithful servant. You may never know the fruit that is produced from your service. That's what Paul's looking for. That's why death is gain. Because I get to be with Christ, and that's all that matters to me. His glory in this life is all that I care about. And death for me is gain. You have opportunities in this church or whatever church you belong to to serve. Tom mentioned one at the beginning of the service. We got lots of babies being born. Over the last week, we have had an average of one baby per week born in this church. You realize that? They just keep coming. We need arms to hold them. Can you imagine a more thankless job than that? Where you're going to change their diapers and hold them, and they may never even know your name. You might get an opportunity one day to walk up to them at their wedding and say in front of their new spouse, I used to change your diaper. That might be the only drop of glory you ever get in this life for that action. But are you content to serve in anonymity for the glory of Christ alone? Can you say with Paul, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, my prayer for each and every one of us, myself included, is for us to be content with where you have placed us. To love what you have given us to do even if it's not our preference, even if it's not our desire, even if it's not ultimately what we want, our prayer for all of us is contentment. That the Christ-centeredness that you aim to bring about, you would do so quickly. We know that we are cooked over a long period of time, over an entire lifetime, which is a vapor to you and seems like forever to us. I pray that you would continue in faithfulness to bring it about in us. That we would grow in contentment, listening to your word being preached, hearing it read, singing it, praying it over and over and over again, reminding us week in and week out of your excellencies, your mercy, your grace to us, time and again demonstrated to us through Christ's death on the cross. Lord, would you help us grasp what it means to be content in where you have placed us? Would you do that for us in Jesus' name? Amen.